Welcome to episode number 223 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, and I am your host. I'm an industry analyst, and we have a really interesting show. We are going to be talking about the role of the chief digital officer, and our guest, Christian Anschutz, works for a company called UL that everybody knows under the name Underwriter Laboratories. So I have to imagine that having been founded in 1884, the company is different today than it was way back then. Oh, it is so different than it was uh, back in uh, 1894. Um, hugely diversified. It is now a global leader. We're in uh, you know, over 100 countries worldwide, 13,000 people. Just a, a fantastic company with a just a, a super, absolutely superb mission, which again is all about safety, uh, safer living, working, uh, and living environments. So you were the CIO at UL for many years, and then you transitioned recently into the chief digital officer role. So let's begin by talking about that that CIO role. So, so what was your mandate as the CIO? Well, I, I think I was just like... Um, you know, every CIO, my job was to, uh, you know, help create a contemporary uh, technology, a platform, if you will, that would uh, allow the, the company to be successful in the marketplace. And what are some of the the challenges that, that you face? I mean, it's a really tough job. And I've seen you talk a lot about the role of IT in terms of supporting innovation at the company. So I think that's a particularly interesting aspect as well. Well, I, you know, I think that uh, everybody has a role in the, in the space of innovation. And I, I definitely think that technologists, whether you're in IT or in a, a line of business that's associated with technology, uh, you know, you, you have to lead from there because you simply are, well, you're already in that cutting edge space. And, and uh, I, I think we're uniquely positioned as leaders in technology to uh, be aware of new and emerging trends and, and uh, you know, take advantage of them for our respective businesses. But I guess, you know, the, the challenge that many CIOs face is bringing innovation back inside the organization and getting out of just supplying the, the infrastructure, right? And people, people use the buzzword becoming a partner with the business. But maybe, so maybe we can kind of explore what that is and how do you, how do you go about doing that? Um, yeah. So, I mean, you got to bring innovation in, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the idea of cross pollination. And I think that you, uh, really have to innovate by creating adjacency. So you really have to spend about two thirds of your time outside of your comfort zone, meaning outside of your industry and learn from what others are doing and, and find connection points and then innovate through, um, you know, understanding what others are doing and bring those into your industry, bring those into your company. Otherwise, what you end up happening, uh, have happening, Michael, is potentially having, um, and we see this all the time, right? It's an industry of me too's. If, if all you're following is, is the same players in your market, the same players in your industry, you're going to keep doing what that industry is doing. And, uh, you know, how innovative is that? Or is it perhaps more interesting to, um, bring something from outside the industry altogether and create 
you know, something altogether new, maybe even a new category that takes you and your firm outside of your industry. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I guess the question then becomes, how do you do that? I mean, do you talk with startups? Uh, how, how do you bring external innovation ideas inside? And especially from into into IT in a way that will affect the broader business outside of IT. Uh, so is the question, how do you do that? Yeah. That, that's, yeah, that's kind of the magic of it. Um, well, I, you know, I think so much of this comes down to just a fundamental leadership conversation, right? So first of all, you got to lead by example. You have to be able to do that yourself. You have to be willing to be really uncomfortable, right? And, and push yourself into these new and different areas and uh, hopefully inspire people to do the same. When you bring these different ideas in, you have to hopefully make the connections and, and show that, you know, in these intersections, in these, in these different things that you could possibly do with your business, you can maybe create an inspiring vision that have people go, wow, this is, um, this is fantastic. This is something I want to be a part of. I guess the point is what I'm trying to uh, make, Michael, is you can't tell people what to do in this space, but you can inspire them to want to be innovative. You can inspire them to want to look outside their comfort zones. You can inspire them to want to look outside their markets and their industries. Excuse me. And so, so can you give some examples from your experience at UL of how you, how you did this? I know it's a leadership, it's a leadership issue as you were describing, but I think it's one that many people find very difficult or there'd be more of it. Uh, yeah, I think it is very difficult. Um, and I think, well, let, let's talk about that first, the last part. You, you said that there would be more of it. You know, what's your impression, uh, Michael? Are, are, are most uh, firms struggling with disrupting themselves, even though it's obvious that all firms are going to be disrupted? I I mean, is that a setup question? I think, I think disrupting oneself, whether it's a, look, as people, it's hard to disrupt and rethink how we are, what we do, how to improve ourselves. And companies are comprised of people. So absolutely, it's very difficult for most companies and very few companies are actually disrupting themselves. I think that's really hard. Yeah, why is that, do you think? Hmm, the tables are turned. The interviewee becomes the interviewer. I, I Again, I, th I think the reason is that it's easier to stay stuck doing what we know. So in business terms, there are we have sources of revenue and we have processes and we don't want to risk upending or disrupting those sources of revenue. So we tend to do that which we've done before, which we've which we know has worked in the past. Yeah, I, Michael, I think you're exactly right. I, I'd have another dimension to it, actually. And it goes back to what you were saying about you know, business not wanting to disrupt, you know, their revenue streams to disrupt their current models. I think there's another part to it, too. And the other part is that I don't think people want to disrupt themselves. I mean, when it comes right down to it, you know, we can talk about, you know, IT and digital and everything, uh, you know, all day and all night uh, and, and think about it in terms of technology. But in the end, it really does come down to people. Because just because it's digital doesn't mean we take people out of the equation. In fact, digital is actually more powerful when you consider people as part of the equation. And the reality is, is I think that most people struggle with disrupting themselves. I mean, change is hard. 
I mean, you know, there's a reason why we call growing pains pains, right? Because it's, it's hard to grow into new and different areas. And so I think it's really important for us to tend to the wants and the needs, the perspectives of the people that we're affecting when we're having these conversations in order to really help bring in these innovations into these, these disruptions and, and, and make them really disruptions that are opportunities as opposed to disruptions that are perceived as distractions. So you're saying that the, the key is to engage the people who are quote unquote going to be disruptive or disrupted in order to make them part of the change process. Yeah, I think the key is actually to look at them as less of people that are going to be disrupted and more people that are going to them actually become disruptors themselves. They're going to be part of the disruption. Um, you know, I, I, at least that's the perspective of a firm that's trying to disrupt itself. And is that what is UL trying to disrupt itself? Yeah, of course. We, we definitely are. We're a 120-year-old uh, firm that would like to think of itself as a 120-year-old startup. And we, we do want to disrupt ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess uh, for a firm, any firm that's been in business for 120 years has, go, has gone through many changes. And so can you elaborate right now on what are what is the focus of that disruption at UL? Well, you know, UL is just a, a fantastic company. I think you have to understand a little bit about us. And uh, let's start with the why again. So the, the purpose of UL is that, you know, our, our, our mission and our purpose is to make safer, more sustainable and more secure. Well, just safer, more secure, more sustainable world. It's a mission for humanity. Right. And uh, we've accomplished that mission in the past by helping organizations uh, test products to meet standards, standards that sometimes we, we write, and sometimes they're standards that we help participate in their development. And when the products pass the standard, that means that, that product is safe, it's sustainable. It, it is whatever, it, it, it's over the threshold for whatever reason that standard exists. And in many cases in our traditional business, that's about safety, right? And yet the thing that's fascinating about us is that our mission is something other than testing. Our mission is about safety, sustainability, and security. And nowhere in that mission statement does it say we just test. And it's very interesting because the, the one thing that this company has and that is very unique is that we are a leader in the trust industry. We are trusted. We're a third party. We're hugely independent. Our integrity we hold uh, incredibly dear. And then the firms that know us, and, the, and, and this is so many of them, over 70,000 manufacturers worldwide, that, that's our customer base, by the way, Michael. Um, uh, they know this about us. And when we have the opportunity to engage in dialogue with them and say, you know, what are your the real deep problems that you're trying to solve? Um, it often is bigger than simply testing their products to help them get to market. It, it's, it, there's way bigger opportunities for us to perhaps pursue. And we're disrupting ourselves by thinking about ourselves in, in, in pursuing these higher order problems as opposed to just the transactional like testing activities that we do. We're a leader in science research. We spend more in R&D, uh, at least to our knowledge, than anybody else in our industry. And, uh, you know, we are uh, constantly, uh, uh, you know, figuring out and, and, and learning about these new and emerging technologies and all the while figuring out how we can maybe disrupt the status quo as we learn more about everything from, uh, you know, new and, and, and emerging alternative power sources, EV, 
well, heck, for that case, drones, new uh, entrees and forays and cybersecurity. I mean, what makes the world safe today is, is very, very different than what made the world safe in the past. That's quite interesting. So your underlying mission remains constant, safe, safety, security, sustainability, that, that trust that you were talking about. Your underlying mission remains constant. However, the way that you, can we say, deliver that mission, that's the thing that changes and is disrupted. Is that, a, is that an accurate way of saying it? Well, that, that's wholly accurate. And, you know, that's what's beautiful about our mission, actually, Michael, is if you, if you think about our mission, it is, it's really not bound by a lot, right? I mean, making the world safer, more sustainable and secure, that gives us a lot of room to maneuver, right? And, uh, and, 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 and in that maneuvering is how we can maybe reinvent ourselves. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting way to think about it. I think many companies don't have that sense of constancy or consistency about their core mission. And so the disruption becomes a, a, a more complete type of change. But it sounds, but so you have that, that constant mission. And when you therefore are thinking about disruption, the execution, the delivery of that mission, how do you then how do you then go about it? How do you then think about that transition, that transformation? Well, that's a that's a big question. So yeah, it's tough. These are these are these are tough questions. Yeah, they're really tough, and uh, you know, I um, it depends on what we are. It, let's just speak in the abstract. Let's talk about it like any firm. I mean, it depends on I, I think on what the firm is trying to transition or transform itself into, right? Uh, and I think that is is uh, you know. It, I'm a big believer in start with why. Our why is clear. You know, again, our why is, is a mission for humanity. You know, uh, what we do then and how we do it is, you know, is sort of that, uh, that order. So you start with why, you go to what are we trying to do, and then we determine about how exactly we're going to do that. So it kind of depends on the what a firm is, is trying to disrupt themselves and, and transform themselves into before you can probably, at least before I could, uh, perhaps say how you might go about doing it. But I, I, I want to circle back to a previous comment and uh, part of our, our discussion beforehand. Um, you know, so much of this has to do with, uh, uh, again, people, right? We, we have to be absolutely uh, deliberate and focused on making sure we bring people along for the ride. It's so, it's so, so critical, uh, Michael. And, and I will tell you, if you were to ask me some of the differences between like a, a traditional CIO role and maybe a CDO role, they're both important roles. And, and certainly one is not better than the other. They're, they're just different. Right. I, I think a, a CIO role is really more typically more typically more about internal, uh, uh, you know, transformation efficiency can be in a contemporary firm internally. A CDO role has, you know, has to trust that a lot of that is happening internally and then project it externally uh, and, and bring the customers in. So I think the CDO role is, is a typically, typically more of an externally facing role. But regardless, when you're affecting like the transformation either within your firm or you're trying to create new values outside the firm, you really need to be, uh, you know, considering the people all along the way. With regard to CDO, because it uh, may have a tendency to have an external impact, which would change the sort of the internal dynamics and the 
and how the company sees itself, maybe even how it, well, definitely how it runs itself, right? How it actually delivers whatever these new values are, these new uh, things. The the scope of the responsibility is then bigger, right? So one is internal and one is maybe more external, at least in this definition, right? And, uh, and uh, but the CDO role is more all-encompassing, uh, at least in my opinion. And, you know, this is where the soft skills become even more important then because you, you really are responsible for changing the external market's perspective on what you do. And then you have to change the internal perspective perhaps on exactly what the firm does and the value that it creates. And so, um, again, I, I'll go back to it. I think the, the, the CDO role and how you uh, actually manage uh, transformation is really about people and organizational change management. It's, it's that saying, I, I'm stealing it from uh, a contemporary of mine that said that, uh, you know, these, the hard results you get are really coming from the soft skills. And, and I do believe that's true for uh, the CDO role. Both roles, all these leadership roles for sure, but definitely the CDO role. So in practical terms, how is your role, how is your work as chief digital officer different from what you did and what you focused on as chief information officer? Well, it kind of follows that same uh, path that I was just on. I mean, the, uh, the CIO role was really much more internally focused around, um, uh, you know, internal operations. And the CDO role is much more of a, a customer facing customer discovery, customer exploration role. Again, going in front of customers and saying, okay, you know, what are the really big problems that you're trying to solve? And doing this out of the context of how they normally see you in, as the firm. Because remember, relationships are contextual, right? So if you, you and I only know each other in a certain context, and we keep talking about the opportunities to work together in new and different ways, it'll always be influenced by the context in which we know each other. Is, is that a fair thing to say? Yes, of course. Okay, but when you want to go into these customers and you want to f- discover these bigger opportunities, you have to you have to first pull yourself out of that that one that context that you're known for, and probably talk to somebody that's different within, within that customer that doesn't have that same context, meaning the the day to day context of how they do business with us today. Now, this is why uh, you know for the company now I've been speaking in generalities. The company that I'm uh, with now, UL, um, that we've been talking about. With the permissions that we have in, in terms of this leader in the trust industry and this, this, this independence, this high integrity firm, we have the opportunity and the, and the latitude in so many cases to move outside of the typical interactions we have with our customers and engage in different places simply because we carry those traits with us. We wear them on our sleeves, so to speak. And so then we can engage in a different conversation and start having uh, uh, explorations around different, perhaps even bigger uh, problems that we could solve. Uh, for them. And again, perfectly in uh, conjunction in support of our mission and our purpose. So when you talk about, uh, again, going back to this consistency of mission and purpose, to what extent extent is this change and disrupting disruption affecting your underlying business model and the operations of UL? Well, I think that has yet to be seen, Michael. I, I, you know, we're relatively, uh, I'm relatively new into this, um, into this role. And, uh, you know, and then that said, this, the, the company has been working to improve itself and diversify itself in accordance with our customer needs for a long period of time. Um, yet a very big disruption for any firm. Um, you know, I, 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 I sometimes wonder, I mean, do 
when GE was, uh, you know, decided to go to GE Digital, right, and then really kind of create this, uh, uh, you know, industrial internet, this Predix platform and all that stuff, did they, when did they know that's what they were going to do? Yeah, what an interesting question. I mean, I think to we we had we've had a few people from GE on this show. We had Ganesh mm-hmm. Bell, who is the chief digital officer for GE Power and Water. Now they have a different name, I think. And we had Linda Boff, who is GE's chief marketing officer. And I think it became apparent to them that the market was changing. And GE needed to have a different kind of relationship with their customers. And so they then rethought, okay, what kind of technology platforms are they using? What is their business model? How are they selling? How are they pricing? And so, for example, instead of selling you a a jet engine, they'll they own the jet engine and they're essentially licensing that jet yeah. engine to you and you can pay on the basis of usage. Jet Obviously, engine is a service. Who would have thought, right? Right, it, it, exactly. So the, so the question of how do you recognize when it's time to change? I mean, at, at UL, and I want to remind everybody, we're talking with Christian Anschutz, who is the chief digital officer of UL. And I think everybody knows UL by the name uh, Underwriter Laboratories, which was their their original name before rebranding. And so, right. so, so how do you at UL, how do you recognize and when did you and what are the signs that say, hey, we need to do something different? It's a really tough. It's an interesting question. Yeah, and it's a tough question. I, I'm not sure if I can put uh, exactly my finger on it and give your uh, audience, your esteemed audience, a, a really great answer. We we do know that there was uh, there is a need for us. I, I mean, we our entire industry knows that we're uh, in in uh, you know in a position where we could be potentially disrupted, right? And the question is, without knowing exactly what that disruption will be. There is a very simple question, and it's one that hopefully all uh, companies and all leaders are asking themselves. Do we want to be the disruptor of ourselves, or do we want to sit by, sit back, and wait till someone disrupts us and then lose the initiative? It, and, and I think we, you know, UL, I can speak for specifically in this case, we want to keep that initiative. Uh, why, why, why give up that initiative when we can, uh, when we can own it? Now, exactly what that disruption is going to look like, exactly what will happen, we're unsure, uh, yet we do know that uh, the only way we're going to seize the initiative is to act and, and to do something. And what that something is, Michael, hopefully someday we'll talk and we'll go, wow, that was crazy a year ago or two years ago, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, how did you know you were going to get here? And, you know, we'll probably reflect back and say, well, actually, we didn't. But here were the series of milestones we hit. And then fun, suddenly the epiphany was this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to change and create an entirely new category of business, something that might even be out of what is our traditional industry, which is a tick testing inspection and certification. Well, it's definitely not a straight line. We have a few questions from Twitter. So let's jump on those because they're, they're pretty interesting. So, oh, yeah. So to begin, um, Arsalan Khan asks, it sounds like to some extent the CDO role is like a consultant to external clients, which is, I'm sure it's, it's not a consulting role, but in fact, there's probably an element of that. 
It's actually a really great comment. And I think, uh, I, you know, maybe I would have been pretty far from using the word consultant. It's just a, just the way I think of that word sometimes. Um, I, I do think there is something to that statement, though, because one of the things that we have to do, and it goes back to that whole context thing, I, I think one of the things we have to do when we're talking to our customers, when we're, when we're really thinking about uh, the businesses we want to be in and uh, the problems, the key, the problems that we want to solve, we got to recursively ask why, right? Keep asking, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you having this problem? I know why is a bit of a bristle word, but you know, what makes this an issue for you until you finally get to you know, the root cause of, uh, you know, the root problems that, uh, you know, the, the companies, your customer base is experiencing. I know from our perspective, uh, you know, they, they engage us for uh, many, many different things. It's you all is a hugely diversified company and very different than it was a number of years ago. The core of our business is still, you know, we test product against standards and when they pass, we, we help issue a mark or we tell the, the, uh, the agency we're testing for that it, it met the performance criteria or whatever. Right. But then when you start asking, like, why do you need uh, why do you need the tests and, and what makes you require the certification until you, you, you keep asking you further and further into the organization, you start understanding that there's just a general lack of understanding with regards uh, to firms of what they have to do to really to safely in accordance, safely in accordance to compliance and regulations, put their products in a specific market. Right. And, and, and testing is a byproduct that comes down to the how you actually do it. But you could wind back and keep asking why until you get to the whole, you know, a totally different problem statement that if you attack it there, the why, you know, what you do today could be, you know, it could be relevant. Uh, it could be relevant in a different way. Uh, I suppose it could be rendered irrelevant. And I, I think that's unlikely in this particular scenario. But uh, I think that there are the things that we could be solving for. But you have to, the consulting question, it's good because you have to go in there and you have to do essentially customer discovery sessions. What is, what are the real pain points other than the context that they know you in and that you know them in? And Arsalan Khan has a very interesting follow-up to the point that you were just making. And he says, so yes, it's good to know, we have to know what customers, their customer pains and their concerns and so forth. But if we only listen to our customers, then Ford would have made just faster horses, not cars. Yeah, well, that's that's comes down to so the whole like design theory, right? You 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 can go and you can listen to just what they say, right? And that's the Ford story. You know, I would instead of building a car, I would have got a faster horse. But what what the customer was really saying when you recursively ask why enough is that they actually needed to get from point A to point B faster. They had to do it without, uh, you know, a certain amount of maintenance. They didn't like using, I'm totally making this up. They didn't want to use wagons. They needed something with a certain amount of capacity. They wanted to sit side by side with somebody. In other words, the question might have been about more sort of, um, uh, or the, the challenge might have been more about a diversity of mobility than it would have been about a faster horse. And if you listened enough, um, you might have heard uh, something different than a faster horse too. I totally get where that uh, statement's coming from, though. I mean, I, I get it and I believe in that. Um, but I think when you, you listen to them, you have to listen to what they say. You have to really understand what they mean. And those can be two different things. That's a key point. So it's not just listening to the words, but it's trying to divine, uh, being empathetic, I guess you could say, being empathetic to what, what do they really want? Keep listening recursively as you were describing earlier. Yeah. What do they want? What do they really need? And if you look at some of the very best disruptions, I mean, you're talking about, 
uh, things that people didn't even know that they wanted. I, I love the example of Uber. I know it's kind of tired in so many ways, but just think about it. You know, people just always took for granted that you had to stand sort of dangerously close to the curb and, you know, wave your hand waiting for a cab. And by the God, by God, hopefully there was, it wasn't rush hour or it wasn't raining, you know, you know otherwise you were, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, out of luck. Uh, and that though was just the way it was, right? Of course, that's just the way it is. That's how the, the, the business worked. That's how, you know, you, you got rides from point A to point B until someone said, wow, you know, there's another need there. Uh, and, and actually, did they, did they have to ask the customers or did they just have to observe? And I think that's observation is key. And that, that kind of goes to that second thing. You can listen to what they say, but you got to really follow like the meaning. And the meaning can be uh, divined by any number of different ways, but observation is certainly one of them. And I think it's probably the key one. Remember, most of what we get from people is less about the words they say. It's about how they say them. Right. It's 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 the nonverbal cues. And then, and then if you just if you believe that. Right. And I, I think that there's all the science to back that that makes it very clear. If you back that and you and you really kind of add then, you know, this sort of subtle nuance to this observation piece and, and you say you observe their behavior. Well, then that's when you get into design thinking and you start understanding why some companies are just better at disrupting than others. They do more than just listen to the words. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Design thinking as a systematic means to do that kind of deep listening that you're describing in order to get to the surface of what the customer ultimately really cares about. Yeah. We have another interesting question from Twitter. Uh, Mark Orlin asks, asks a burning question that I think is on all of our minds, which, sure. which is, why do we need a chief digital officer? Why are these, why is the CIO and CDO role separate? And he says, wouldn't the ideal be a customer focused CIO? Oh, I think that's a great question and a great point. So, you know, it was so funny. I got the CDO role just a short while ago. I've been operating in the capacity for a while of the CDO, but I was still the CIO. So what was the difference? Right. Um, no sooner than I uh, got the, the, the role and I, I stumbled on an article it was by Forbes. It was uh, January. It was this year, I think, in January. And Forbes was saying, you know, say goodbye to the CDO role. And I'm, I read it and I'm like, wow, that stinks. I just got the job. <laughs> um, but the point of it was, and it was a really good point, is that if, if firms uh, stop thinking about uh, there being business strategy and digital strategy, and it's just a contemporary strategy, and the businesses are run with a very contemporary mindset, and it's very agile around technology. It's very inclusive of people and their involvement in technology. Um, then you know, then you don't need a CDO. So if I've heard people say that eventually the CDO role may go away as the digital mindset, digital understanding, kind of diffuses through an organization that the CDO role we could say is a transitionary role. I think that's, I think that's right. You know, I, you know, and I'm less than I'd, I'd say, you know, some sort of expert in this. I, I, I do think that's right though, but let's, let's be honest with ourselves and, and look about at the firms uh, that we all know. And I'm speaking in general here. I think that having a CDO role in a company like uh, I'm just picking a, an example, like a Google, for example, probably, makes a little less sense than, than a company like, say, maybe like a, a Ford Motor Company. 
right? Both fantastic companies. And by the way, I drive Fords, love Fords. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that there is this, this, this transition, as you said, and, and as firms, firms don't just overnight become the sort of digital entity, right? It takes, it took Ford a while to understand that they didn't just do cars, that they did mobility. And them understanding what it takes to actually be sort of mobile players in a digital world is still something that they're embarking on. And so having a CDO role that is sort of ushering in uh, you know, the, that, that understanding, this sort of contemporary culture, this contemporary understanding, this contemporary application to their business, I think takes a certain amount of time. So counter to the Forbes article, which said, say goodbye to the CDO role, was another article uh, by McKinsey that talked about the uh, CDO as a transformer in chief. And, uh, you know, I, I prefer the uh, latter article <laughs> to the former. Uh, by the way, they're both great articles. Uh, but I think that's why you actually need the CEO role, at least right now, because I think we're in a state of, of massive transformation. And again, every industry is going to get disrupted. Uh, and uh, since we're all rather unclear as to how we do it, I mean, the very basis of why we're having this conversation and the questions you're asking, how are you going to know? How are you disrupting yourselves? What are you doing about it? Because most of these questions are very difficult to answer for most firms. I think that's why the CDO role exists. Well, as you said earlier, it's very difficult to disrupt ourselves as individuals, and it's very difficult to make the changes needed to disrupt ourselves as companies. We have another really interesting and and I, I think a, a pretty deep question, actually, from Sal Rasa, who says, is the CDO role a community relationship responsibility, a community relationship management responsibility designed to inform change management decisions? I think that's a big part of it. I really do. Um, I, I go back to the, the, the statement about the people uh, and, and not leaving the people behind. That is all about change management. And I think that that is a, a really big, a big part of it. Now, that said, there is this external portion of it that goes back to these adjacencies that we talked about. You have to be bringing the people along, but you also have to be an explorer. And, and you have to be uh, utterly unafraid to go into new and different areas. Jeff Bezos I love one of his quotes, and he's a very quotable person, right? He made a comment, and he's uh, a, a quote, and I, I think I'm attributing this properly. If I'm wrong, I apologize. But he said, I, I, at Amazon, we're not afraid to be misunderstood. And and I think what's behind that quote is that they are okay to go in, in new and different areas um, and and have a lot of people scratch their head and go, why, why the heck are they doing that? But they're doing it as part of their exploration, now, Lewis and Clark didn't make a beeline, you know, directly from the east to the west. It wasn't a perfectly straight line. You made that comment earlier, right? Um, you know, a lot of people in hindsight would have been, well, why did they scale that mountain? Well, they, they actually didn't know they had a choice or because it looked particularly great or perhaps it gave a whole new vantage on a whole set of opportunities that lay beyond it. Um, you know, I, I, I think that there's, uh, there's the people aspect of the CDL role. I think that's critical. I think this exploration portion of it and bringing – uh, the people along in that exploration, exploration again, making them uh, potential disruptors themselves is actually very, very critical. You know, and yet again, another really good, you do have, I remember when we were starting this conversation, you said, uh, uh, you know, Christian, just think, you know, we're going to be sitting here talking around a table with a bunch of very, very smart people. You remember making that comment to me? Um, and, and clearly your audience and the questions they're asking is, uh, is making your statement uh, very, very true. 
Oh yeah, no, the audience of CXO Talk is quite amazing. And we have another really interesting comment from Shelley Lucas, who uh, is with Dun & Bradstreet. And she makes the comment that she thinks you are ahead of your time as a chief digital officer because many digital leaders are focusing on the science rather than the people on the culture. And I interpret that to mean not just the science, but focusing on the the technology platforms that enable this as opposed to the, the people and cultural issues. Well, see, I've been, <laughs> thank you, Shelly. You said it was Shelly? Thank Shelley. you, Shelly. Um, that's very kind. Uh, you know, I was in IT long enough to know, I mean, IT could implement, uh, you know, the best system uh, and you fail to get the people on board with it. And, uh, you know, you, you're going to have a, an adoption issue. You're going to have, well, the, and we all know the stories, right? You can implement the best system. And uh, by the way, it's an old IT joke. How, you know, how do you make people love their old system? You implement a new one, right? And that's because if you fail to bring them, that's true. It is so true. It's a joke, but it's totally true. Um, spoken, you know, you, spoken, spoken by somebody with a long history in IT. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Please go ahead. No, it's <laughs> but it's, it's totally true. And, and uh, you know, so I learned at, uh, you know, relatively young age, uh, and, and I've been trying to get better at it. And it is a, a bit of a struggle, but I've learned that the, the, you, you can only get down the path uh, as far as you want to go when you have a lot of people in support. So you got to bring them along. And then I go back to this topic of leadership at the end, but what is the point, what is the obligation of leaders, but to co create a compelling vision and then inspire people to want to uh, fulfill that vision. And if you are unable to do that, then how would you ever really help hope to disrupt yourself and disrupt an, an entire industry? Because if you, you're not going to disrupt it with just technology, you're only going to disrupt it with your people plus some technology. So the technology, I mean, the way I talk about it often is the technology provides enabling capabilities, right? It lets you do things that you couldn't have done before. So for example, uh, a software platform that lets you collect data. Well, you need, if you're, if you're a digital company, you're going to be relying on, on lots of data, but merely having that technology platform doesn't mean that anybody is going to use it or do anything valuable with it. You're a wise man. That's exactly right. How many great technologies uh, were just simply the wrong technologies, even though, even though they were perfect, but they came out too soon and they came out too soon. So they were still wrong. Right. And so, uh, you know, was that because of the technology was at fault? Was it uh, because the society or the, the, the audience was unre unready for it? Or was it a combination of the two where the technology was right, but there was too little time uh, spent in making the audience understand why this was actually, a, a, you know, a really great value enhancer. Yeah, I, I think you probably get a bunch of different answers depending on the use case you look at. So how do, how do you convince the organization that change that it needs to undertake this kind of change? And then if can we can we go back to UL specifically and talk about the nature of this change process at UL? Uh sure. Uh so what, what's what, what's the question you kind of want me to dial in on there? Is the is the change process specifically at UL? Well, I think the uh, and by the way, we have about five minutes left. So so as as we wind down, what are the what are the lessons or the takeaways about driving driving disruption, self disrupting, disrupting your own organization? How do you start? How do you even begin? 
Well, I think you begin, uh, and, and you might be unsurprised to hear this from a company that prides itself in integrity and, uh, and, and independence. It, it starts with transparency. And we ask our colleagues, and they're getting better at this. I mean, we're just, you know, really kind of starting off. But we ask our, our colleagues, you know, what are the directions that they think we should go? What is, what is the company that we can and, and we should be? Again, unconstrained by anything other than our unique mission and purpose. Again, safer living, working environments, right? And and uh, in our imagination, what could this company be? And getting them involved. I'll tell you, that's one, I think, one of the most key things you can do. Uh, and again, I know it's soft. It has very little to do with, you know, inventing some whiz-bang high-tech solution. Um, but it, it, it's been an important lesson for us, I think, uh, is, is to involve our staff. Um, I think the other thing is, is uh, again, that thing we talked about already, which is changing the context of our conversations with our customers. Um, they know us in a certain context. They give us permissions to have different conversations with them than we traditionally do. So seizing those permissions, having uh, different conversations with them, and really try and find you know, sort of the root of these higher order problems that, uh, that plague them, and that you have the opportunity uh, to help them address and, and uh, create new value for them, and then, of course, for the company that you support. What about the role of senior management? I mean, that, uh, you know, you're talking about the grassroots side, but I, but don't you have to also go from the top down as well? Well, you know, again, that senior management, that leadership, it's, it's the, it's the vision, it's uh, inspiring people uh, to follow that. And then of course, then there's modeling, right? So there's an old, uh, you know, I was in the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps taught you a lot about leadership and this concept of leading by example and uh, allowing yourself uh, to be less than perfect, allowing yourself to fail and even celebrating those failures and, and getting a management team on board with saying, hey, you know, we're going to explore and some of our explorations, perhaps even the majority of our explorations are going to end in dead ends. And being accepting, accepting of that, I think, is critical because that unfetters your organization. It makes them less scared to move in these areas, uh, in these roads less traveled and, and, and then become potential disruptors themselves. Because if you're afraid that uh, a dead end is going to be a blemish on your career, on your history, uh, I think that uh, you, you're actually stifling yourself. I think you have to free up, again, you have to free up your people and you have to, to the best of your ability, is free them up from that particular fear and help them have courage. There'll always be some fear, but you know, a little less fear, a little more courage. And I think senior management is critical to that. Well, I guess that's a um, one of the most important and fundamental lessons. We have just a minute left. And Christian, I know that you are a vet and I know that you're very supportive of vets. And, and would you like to take a minute and tell us about some of your activities in relation to, to that? Oh, thank you. Uh, thanks, Michael. Uh, yeah, I mean, we I, just a quick plug. Uh, I'm part of an organization called Project Relo. It's a fascinating organization that is uh, uses transitioning veteran instructors to uh, teach corporate executives the art and science of leadership. And uh, it's done in a very unique fashion in, in partnership with the United States uh, military. We do uh, uh, pseudo-military operations uh, with this this collective of executives and uh, and veterans and, uh, and, and build a deep understanding that uh, hiring our veterans is more than a social good. It's simply good business. If you want to learn more, check out projectreload.org. Project uh, Reload, R-E-L-O-A-D dot org. Uh, project R-E-L-O dot org. Reload. Got it. Okay. Check out Project Reload, R-E-L-O dot org. 
We have been talking with Christian Anschutz, who is the former chief information officer and now the chief digital officer of UL, which everybody knows as Underwriter Laboratories. Christian, thank you for taking time to be here with us today. Thank you so much. We have more shows coming up and they are great shows. Next week, we're speaking with the CEO of Coursera, and he used to be the president of Yale University. So that's going to be an interesting one. Check out cxotalk.com slash episodes. Thanks, everybody, for watching, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.